wisdom rise ancestors surround us hi and welcome to advancing the art of aging i'm carol silver elliott president and ceo of the jewish home family in northern new jersey This series of podcasts is intended to give you information that you can use to learn not only more about the Jewish home family, but to learn more about staying well, being well, and aging successfully. Today, I want to talk to you about our experience in recent months during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it's an important topic for all of you to be aware of, and particularly as you learn more about us, perhaps it's something that will deepen your understanding of the Jewish Home Family as an organization. As with everyone else, our first indications that COVID-19 was coming were the reports we heard coming out of China. We weren't overly concerned about it, but when that moment came that Kirkland happened and we knew that not only was the virus in this country, but that it was affecting individuals, particularly individuals who were elderly, we knew that we needed to really kick our actions and our planning into gear. The terrifying thing about all of that, besides the unknown quality of the virus, is the fact that we had none of our conventional resources to rely on for information. No one was giving us guidance about what to do, what not to do, how to move forward, and we were literally making it up as we went along. We started, and I vividly remember this, with some conversations about PPE, personal protective equipment. Today, we know that PPE is critical in fighting this virus, but at the beginning of March, we were guessing, and there was no guidance. So we had the first conversations about PPE early in March, and we had a conversation that I remember vividly about how many face masks do we buy? Way before we were talking about N95s and and isolation gowns, we were talking about surgical face masks. And I remember our director of nursing on the nursing home campus saying, I think we should get 5,000. And I said, "Mm, I think we should get 10,000. And the administrator of the nursing home, who clearly had a greater vision for this than we did, said, I think we should get 30,000. That 30,000 went very quickly, and it's been replaced over and over and over since. We also began to think about essential versus non-essential workers and the importance of keeping all of our staff in the building. Everyone, from my perspective, is an essential worker. But we were concerned that under a category of essential versus non-essential, there would be a time when the state or the Department of Health would say, if you're non-essential, you can't be in the building. And we needed all those hands. So we conducted a training for people to become what's called in New Jersey paid dining assistants. That means that they have a certification program that enables them to do anything that has to do with food and the elders. That might be delivering trays. It might be helping people eat. But anything to touch food with the elders requires that certification. We put more than 50 people through that paid dining certification class, eight hours of training, to make sure that if we needed those extra hands, those hands were there. We also, frankly, did a lot of praying and hoping that COVID was not going to come in our doors, a prayer that we all knew was not going to be answered. We often looked at each other and said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. 
but we were much later to see it than many of those around us. And so we dared for a moment to hope, but that hope was not to be realized. Late in March, before we even saw our first case, I got a phone call from one of my friends and colleagues who is the CEO of a large healthcare system nearby, and they were already slammed with COVID. They were turning their cafeteria into an ICU. They had people stacked up trying to be cared for, and the pressure and the complexity were just overwhelming. And he said something to me that really became our battle cry throughout the rest of this experience. And that was, please, Carol, don't send your people to the hospital. Don't send them to the hospital. He was not saying to me that if we needed to send an elder to the hospital that they wouldn't be cared for, not at all. What he was saying was that they were so overwhelmed that someone who was in their late 80s with multiple medical issues might not be the person who was first to be cared for, might not be the person who was getting the same immediate attention as someone who was younger and more critical. We took that nugget and we really ran with it. We had our social workers on both campuses talk to every family member and every elder so that we were clear about people's wishes. If they wanted to go to the hospital, that absolutely was documented. But many of them didn't want to go to the hospital. Many of them wanted to stay where they were, to stay in their homes where they could be cared for by the staff that they, that they trusted and that they loved. In late March, COVID came, didn't knock, came walking through our door. We were able later to trace the first cases of COVID. One was a family member who at that time had no symptoms but came in to visit his loved one. A second was a staff person who came in thinking she had a bad cold. And the two others were cases that came from the hospital. They were admitted here for short-term rehabilitation without anyone knowing that they were COVID positive. Within a day or two, they began to cough and show symptoms. And by the time we really realized what was happening, they had already contaminated a number of our staff. With that, the numbers really began to grow and cascade at a terrifying and alarming rate. One thing we know about this virus is that it spreads incredibly quickly, and it's very, very difficult to contain. But our team worked extraordinarily hard to contain it, to control it, and to learn everything we could. We began to acquire all of the PPE that we could from conventional and unconventional sources, We were blessed with finding a colleague who turned us on to a lab that could provide adequate testing. Early on, when we asked for testing, the lab provider, large national lab provider that we work with, said, I'll send you tests and sent us five for a building of 180 and five for another building of 110. That was not going to work for us. But the lab provider that we were able to find out of state, thanks to the help of a colleague, was able to provide us with the testing we needed and to give us that all-important 48-hour turnaround. That was a game changer for us. Over the course of what I always refer to as the five-year-long month of April, many of our staff became ill with COVID. Thankfully, none of our staff lost their battles, although some of them lost loved ones as a result of COVID. 
a number of our elders on both campuses became ill, and we were aggressive in setting up isolation hallways, hanging tarps from floor to ceiling, keeping people in rooms that were safeguarded, making sure we had assigned specific staff to only work in those isolation units, making sure that we were as careful as we could possibly be. We even designed our own COVID diet. We knew that people needed calories to be able to heal. And we also knew that even if people weren't ill, they needed calories to stay strong and to fight. Imagine you're an elder who's being told you have to stay in your room, you can't come out. The programs that you enjoy, the dining socialization that you treasure, the connection with your family, with volunteers, with the community, all of that's taken away. So even if you don't feel ill or don't have COVID, you don't have an appetite. So we became very skilled at creating foods that were high in calories and very appealing to people. We served milkshakes and smoothies loaded with all kinds of proteins. We found foods that were tolerable and palatable for people. One story that I remember in particular is about our dietitian who had been out caring for family members who had COVID. She came back and she very quickly realized that her job was completely changed. This was not about planning menus and figuring out nutritional balances. This was about getting people to eat. With one of our elders, when Gabby went into her room, the woman was not responding to her at all, a change from where she'd been the previous day. Struggling with this COVID diagnosis, it appeared that this person was really giving up the fight. Gabby called her daughter and said, is there anything your mom really likes to eat? And the daughter said, she never says no to ice cream. So she tried ice cream. We have a great supply of ice cream here always. And she tried giving the woman small spoonfuls of chocolate ice cream, and the woman refused to take it. But Gabby thought, what if I let it melt? And so she left it and came back a little while later, and she tried pouring the ice cream as a liquid down this woman's throat. She not only took the ice cream, she took it from Gabby three times a day. Days later, Gabby walked in the room expecting to need to melt that ice cream again, and the woman was sitting up in bed and eating a chicken dinner, if you can imagine. That's what it takes, that kind of commitment and dedication. This is what saw us through the crisis. As we saw people begin to recover, one of the really critically important things we did was to celebrate each and every one of those recoveries. As people came out of isolation, as they were wheeled through those really frightening tarps into the rest of the building, we had staff from all parts of the organization lining the hallways, all dressed fully in PPE. Music was playing, people were clapping and cheering and dancing, and every person who graduated from isolation was given a certificate to be a commemoration of their being a successful COVID fighter. It was a moment that lifted all of our hearts and really, truly, the whole building rocked with the excitement and the joy of watching people recover. Our COVID battle began to wind down and we, at the beginning of June, were able to say that we had no more cases of COVID in our building but our vigilance has not stopped for an instance. 
PPE is still critically important, and it's a part of our everyday life. We use it appropriately, both with face masks for all, as well as N95 masks and face shields and gowns as necessary in the care of the elders who live with us. We are very focused on testing. We, could, we are now testing all of our staff once every single week. We have tested our elders and reached a point where, at least right now, the weekly testing has ceased. And we are making every effort in our power to keep COVID and a second wave of COVID outside our doors. In the next week, we'll be giving flu shots to 100% of our elders and 100% of our staff. We will not let up until this battle is won. We urge our staff every day not only to follow all the important infection control protocols, but to do the same thing when they're not on our campus. When they're home, making sure that they're providing all of the important things for their families, face masks, hand washing, cleaning and sanitizing. We have to keep ourselves healthy so that we can keep our elders healthy. COVID has tested all of our metal. It has truly been the worst of times in so very many ways, but it also in perhaps an ironic way has been the best of times as we've seen our team come together, as we've seen the love and compassion and commitment that they always show, but that they showed now over and over and over again in spades. We are very proud of this team, proud of the work that we've done, and proud to say that we are here once again to advance the art of aging. Thank you. Rise, all of the children rise. Elders with wisdom rise. Ancestors surround us rise.